they say three is a magic number. Well, this may very well be our magic podcast. Hello, everybody. Adeshina Korki once again, and this is the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, episode number three, and a very, very good episode that we have for you, a couple of very knowledgeable guests. And if you're tuning in through a lot of sportstalk.com, uh, continue to surf around the website, a lot of sportstalk.com. We have a couple of news stories for you, including a French Open written preview by a new member of a lot of sportstalk.com, a new contributor to the site, Gabe Gonzalez. Talking about the men's and women's singles draw in the French Open. And in another day, we will have a preview of the greatest spectacle in racing, the Indianapolis 500, that will take place on Sunday morning in Indianapolis and Indianapolis Motor Speedway. The preview written by an auto racing expert, Bob Pagels, who wrote our Indy 500 preview last year and it got rave reviews. And uh, Bob will provide another preview of this year's Indianapolis 500. But our show today, a couple of really good guests. The UEFA Champions League final is on Saturday and it pits Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid, a city derby in Lisbon. And the winner will be crowned the champion of Europe, and we talk with Jorge de Castro, the president of the Atletico de Madrid New York Supporters Club in New York City, as he educates us a little bit more about Atletico de Madrid, the winners of La Liga, and also a chance to be winners of Europe in the premier club competition in soccer. So we talk with Jorge de Castro and talk a little bit about the Champions League and Atletico de Madrid specifically. But first, it's more French Open, and we talk with Lindsey Gibbs of the Changeover at changeovertennis.com, a tennis journalist, a filmmaker, and an author as well. And we had a very, very entertaining interview as we preview the 2014 French Open that begins on Sunday. So enjoy the interviews with Lindsay and Jorge, and we will see you at the end of the show. On Sunday, the second Grand Slam of the tennis season gets underway in Paris, the 2014 French Open, and it promises to be one of the most wide-open French Open fields in recent memory. And joining us right now to talk about the French Open in greater detail is tennis journalist and filmmaker Lindsay Gibbs. She writes tennis commentary for The Changeover on changeovertennis.com, and she's also an author as she penned Titanic, a tennis story back in 2012. And first of all, Lindsay, thank you so very much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, Thank you very much for uh, being on. And it's always fun to talk about tennis. And right now we're talking about the 2014 French Open. We'll start on the men's side. And usually when you talk French Open and the men's singles draw, you have to talk about Rafael Nadal. And that's actually... Uh, what we're going to do now, but not for the reasons that we usually talk about Rafa. He has actually had a pretty pedestrian uh, season on clay. He's only won one uh, event on clay in the uh, European clay court season. Novak Djokovic, um, he's won three of the uh, Tennis Masters 1000 Series events. He just beat uh, Rafael Nadal in Rome. So, uh, And he just came off a wrist injury, Novak Djokovic, as well. So there's questions with Djokovic, even though he's playing a little bit better than Rafael Nadal. So my question to you is, who would you pick as the favorite going into this year's French Open, even though Nadal has eight French Open titles, Djokovic is playing better. 
who would you pick as the favorite going into the tournament starting on Sunday? You know, I have to stick with Rafael Nadal. It's it's his house until someone literally just takes it from him. Um, and and I think that it, there certainly are. The field is is wide is is much more seemingly wide open this year than it, it has felt in the past. But we've had years before. I mean, there was 2011 where Djokovic was having the season of his life and had taken out Nadal in the Madrid final and the Rome final. And it seemed like that was Djokovic's year. And then, of course, he lost to Federer in the semifinals that year. Nadal went on to take the title. And I think that, you know, that Djokovic has as good of chances as he's ever had at the French Open. I think the field has a, a sliver of hope that they haven't had in a really long time. But, but I do think that Nadal is, in a best out of five, it's really hard to take out Rafael Nadal on clay, as has been shown time and time again. So he gets the edge for me, but it won't be, it, I won't be aghast with shock if he loses this year. Uh, speaking of best of five, and I guess going the distance, uh, in the uh, Italian Open, Rafael Nadal had to play and win three consecutive matches uh, that went the distance on clay. And that was the first time uh, that has happened in a while, a long while. Um, I think it might have been the first time ever that Nadal's had to win three consecutive clay court matches uh, going the distance. Is that a good sign for Rafael Nadal, or is that a sign of the aura of invincibility uh, kind of waning going into this French Open? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. I think... Like I said earlier, I think the entire field has a little bit more hope this year. You know, we've seen some things on the ATP side that we haven't seen in, you know, in this kind of unprecedented generation of domination. You know, you saw Wawrinka grab the, the French, the Australian Open, excuse me, and then, of course, he won the Monte Carlo Masters title as well. Um, you've seen the younger guys have some, some great results this year on a steady basis and kind of climb up. So I think that if, if you're looking for reason to believe um, and you're a tennis player and, you know, you're, you're having to face Nadal or face one of the big guys, I don't think any of the big guys, you know, the big four you usually talk about as far as Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, and Murray, none of them are playing the best tennis of their career right now. And I think that's odd. You've had this year after year, at least one of them has been playing the best tennis of their career. Now, they're still all better players than the rest of the field, but, uh, but they're they're – they're vulnerable on any given day, I think. And um, I think Nadal, Nadal used to be a really slow starter um, it, throughout his career. But he really got over that, kind of when he was going through his really big, big periods of domination. And you're seeing that again. He's slow out of the gates. Um, it takes him a while to get warmed up. But once he does get warmed up, you know, Murray, Simone, all these guys don't really have a shot. So I think that over best of five, that's even, you know, there's even more time for him to get warmed up than there has been before. And and he'll have a day off in between each match. And I think that that's probably not good news for the rest of the field. <laughs> you know, I think I think the field would probably have a better shot taking out the doll if it was best of three for sure. Yeah. Uh, once again, talking with Lindsey Gibbs of the changeover. And you mentioned uh, the big four and we talked about Nole and Rafa and also Federer and Andy Murray. But as you mentioned, the first Grand Slam winner of 2014 in Australia uh, was Stanislas Wawrinka. And as you said, he won the uh, Monte Carlo uh, 1000 event there. Um, how close is Stan Wawrinka to breaking into that big four and assess his chances going into uh, this French Open? I mean, yeah, you look at Wawrinka in the last, you know, he made the semifinals of the U.S. Open. Um, he took out Murray and pushed uh, Djokovic there. 
And then he, you know, finished the year in the top 10. He won the Australian Open, and then he, he won his first Masters Series title. It's hard not to say that he is there already, you know? Yeah. Um, he's, he's pushed all the top guys. He took out Federer, you know, in the finals. He's, he took out Djokovic at the Australian Open. It's not like he's been given, you know, patty cake draws. Of course, you know, Nadal was injured in that, that Australian Open final, but that happens to, to everybody. You know what I mean? Everybody gets a break somewhere along the way. Um, he's there. I mean, for in my opinion right now, he's much more of a threat than, than Murray is because Murray struggled in, with his comeback. Um, he might not have the air of invincibility that a Murray does or the intimidation factor because he hasn't been great over such a consistent amount of time. But especially on clay, I would put Vavrinka ahead of Murray for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, speaking of Andy Murray and also Roger Federer, the other two of the quote-unquote uh, big four right now, of course, Federer, 17 uh, major championships, and he's had an up-and-down clay court season. He went to the finals in Monte Carlo, but then got shocked uh, by Jeremy Chardy, I believe, in the second round um, in Rome, and then you have uh, Andy Murray coming off his back injury. He had a pretty good uh, tournament in Rome as well. I believe he lost to uh, Rafa Nadal um, in a three-set match. Uh, and which of the two you think might be better uh, suited to make a run in this year's French Open of the two between Federer and uh, Andy Murray? I mean, I have to say Federer because he's done it before. I think he's really, really underrated on clay. And I think that it's it's hard to know what you're getting with Federer this season because he was having, you know, he has had a much better season than he did last year. And he didn't he did take out Djokovic in Monte Carlo. Djokovic was dealing with his wrist injury, but he did beat Djokovic on clay. He's the only clay loss that Djokovic has had this year. Um, and I think that, of course, his children were born right before. So he, you know, he pulled out of Madrid. And then, you know, in Rome, he he lost in his first match to Shardy. But he, it's really hard. He There were certainly some definite distractions going yeah. going on around him. You can't really, can't really blame him for that, I don't think. Um I think going into the French, you know, he knows Paris so well. Andy Murray, in that first set against Nadal in Rome, he looked fantastic. But then he just went away. I think that's the story kind of of Andy Murray on clay. He does have flashes of brilliance, but he can't sustain aggression for long enough on the surface to really be a threat. So I think Federer is still a much better clay quarter player than, than Murray. Uh, once again, Lindsay Gibbs of the Changeover joining us, talking French Open 2014 and still on the men's side. Uh, one last question, at least on the men's side. Any player or players that we really should look out for that we haven't talked about? Maybe a player like uh, Grigor Dimitrov or Milos Raonic. Just a couple of players outside of the top four, top five that we should look out for that might make a deep run. And I know it depends on the draw, of course. Uh, but a couple of players outside of that top four, top five that you think could make a deep run and be a breakout player uh, in this French Open. Absolutely. I think that the, the two players you mentioned, Grigor Dimitrov and Milos Raonic, and I'd add Kay Nishikori to that list. Of course, Nishikori was up a set and a break to Nadal in the Madrid final before his back gave out. And, um, I mean, he was really taking Rafael Nadal to the woodshed and in a final on clay. So this, all those three guys are all in, like, the 21 to 23 range, I think. And they've all kind of been around and have a lot of, had a lot of hype surrounding them for a while. But we haven't really seen them live up to their potential. And I think that this year you're starting to see signs on a consistent basis that these guys are, are the next generation. They are the ones to watch. You know, eventually all the big four will be retired one day. Eventually age will catch up to the, these guys. And this group seems to be the group that's kind of poised to 
um, to step up if, if they're willing to. You know, it's, it's kind of there for the taking. I think they should go in. All three of them have had some great moments this clay season. Milos Raonic played phenomenally against Djokovic of Madrid, and I think it was the semifinals there. I mean, in Rome, excuse me, in Rome. Um, Nishikori, until he got injured, you know, was, was doing great in, in Madrid. And, and Dimitrov had a great, he made the semifinals of uh, Rome as well. I think that those are the three guys to really look out for. And I think that at least one of them is going to have a statement major um, at the French Open. It's not the French Open, for sure, Wimbledon. But I'm really looking at the French Open as being a great possibility. Uh, we're going to move on to the women in just a second. But um, I have to ask you, I always get the European clay court cities confused. Rome, Madrid, Monte oh, Carlo. <laughs> yes. I, I, I was doing a post on the change every other day. We do kind of like a daily wrap-up post. And I was kind of recapping some of the scores in Rome, and I wrote all of them as Madrid scores. <laughs> I was like, what is wrong with you? I was like, oh my God, it was, it was very embarrassing. <laughs> no, no, do not be embarrassed. I literally had to pause at least a couple of times before I said Rome, Madrid, Monte Carlo. And even then, I wasn't too sure, and I was, I think I was waiting for you to correct me. Uh, Monte Carlo, I can get usually because it's way before the other ones. So it's kind of different in the narrative of things. But Rome and Madrid, the back-to-back, and they've switched orders. They used to be the reverse order. Madrid used to be last, Rome used to be first. And that was just a few years ago, so I get confused. Uh, once again, talking with uh, Lindsey Gibbs uh, of the Changeover Talking Tennis, and we will now uh, talk about the women and the favorite, of course, last season's, uh, last year's uh, champion at the French Open, Serena Williams. It was a nine-year wait for Serena Williams to win her second uh, French Open. Uh, she's won at least the other majors five times. Well, she's won each of the other three majors five times exactly. Uh, without Victoria Azarenka, who just withdrew uh, from the field due to a foot injury, and Azarenka has been one of the players and probably the player that has played uh, Serena Williams the best of all the players on the WTA Tour. Is Serena Williams even more of a favorite going into this uh, tournament given Azarenka's withdrawal or is it, or would it have been more of the same even with Azarenka in the field? I think the Azarenka this year, who's been dealing with injury, would have been more the, more the same. Um, and Clay is not Azarenka's best surface, so it's certainly disappointing to not to have Azarenka be injured. But she's certainly much more of a threat on grass and on hard course than she is on clay. So I don't really feel like that changed the spectrum of kind of the narratives for the women heading into the French Open as much as just just disappointing not to see one of the best players out there, of course. Um, and she did make the semifinals last year and played a great match against Sharapova. So she has been improving on clay. Um, but, I mean, yeah, it's Serena's the favorite. I mean, Serena's the favorite of any tournament she enters ever, in my opinion. That doesn't mean she's definitely going to win. We've seen injuries. We've seen players, you know, come out, and she's just had a bad day, and they've had a great day. I mean, nobody wins every tournament they enter, but I think Serena Williams has to be the favorite. In this French Open, and I've always come to uh, think this, at least on the women's draw, literally anybody anybody can win uh, the French Open. I guess uh, the evidence is Serena Williams going nine years uh, without uh, winning a French Open. But if you go back in the past uh, few years, you've had Francesca Schiavone win the French Open. You've had uh, an Anastasia Mesquina win the French Open. You've had a, an Eva Maioli win the French Open. Mary Pierce has won the French Open. Um, any players out there, and I'm sure there will be, uh, because that's, I guess, the nature of 
uh, the French Open, at least in the women's draw, in my opinion, um, any players, even they could be in the top 10 and further down, that you possibly see, if Serena Williams doesn't win, um, see being a surprise winner of the French Open? Well, my first, first person I think you have to talk about this year is Simona Halep. She is in the top five right now, so if you've been paying attention, she's not really a surprise. But for the people who just kind of pay attention to the majors, um, her ride has really been just so me meteoric over the last year that she hasn't really been a factor in many of the majors. She comes into this one in the top five. She made the finals of Madrid, I believe it was. <laughs> um, <laughs> check me on that. Um and, and played against uh, Sharapova. But um, I don't know. I, I think that Simona Halep could really surprise, surprise a lot of people. She just seems to get better and better every single week. And Clay's a great surface for her. I think she's going to be really fun to watch. And if you don't know her, you should definitely tune into one of her matches. She plays really fun points. Uh, she's got a great mixture of kind of... She's versatile on the court, but she also has power. Um, she's a blast to watch. And you are correct, it was the Madrid final, okay. uh, where she lost to Maria Sharapova, 6-1, uh, and then 2-6, uh, and 3-6. Uh, uh, another player, I get, that won a French Open, and at the time, it was a surprise, but now you see her ranking, um, it's... It, you wouldn't think it's a surprise, is uh, Lee Na. She is. She readily admitted it then and even now that Clay is not uh, her cup of tea, but Lee Na uh, is, uh, was the Australian Open champion um, uh, earlier this year in January. So does she have a pretty good shot? I think as much as, as anybody, or probably a little bit more so than anyone, because she's been there. Of course, Lena won the Australian Open this year, which was great to see her get that second major. She's been as consistent as she's ever been this season, which consistency is certainly not something you usually attribute to Lena. She's been trying some new things on clay to really kind of try and become a clay court player, which is very backwards. Most people try and become a clay, clay court player before they win Roland Garros, but she's kind of trying... After she won Roland Garros, um, I think that she still hasn't been a top ten player. If I'm correct, um, this whole season she's had some really great results, but the draws have opened up nicely for her in some aspects. I think that she's certainly one to watch. I think I want to see what kind of draw she gets, and you know whether she can take anything out of it. I don't think she can take out Serena on clay. But I think she can push anyone else on glide. And, of course, Serena Williams, she's in the uh, 30 and older, and I believe Lina is in the uh, 30 and older class right now. And Serena, obviously, she's been so consistent and is a specimen in terms of athleticism. How long can Serena Williams, and I guess Lina as well, since they're both over 30, sustain uh, their level of play, especially usually when in tennis, if you're over 30, you're way over the hill? Yeah, gosh, that's really hard to say. I think, you know, I think motivation continues to be a big factor um, in, in, in time management and injuries. I can't really see both of them having another good two or three years, honestly, which is pretty pretty incredible when you think about it. I think everyone's kind of at eye the next Olympics, is, which is now just two years away. Um, a lot of, you know, the older players do that. They kind of feel in Olympic cycles. But I really wouldn't be surprised to see them both play another another full two seasons and, and perhaps more if they continue to play. They both seem more motivated than ever. They've both taken time off, too. They're not, um, 
They haven't played, you know, Lena really, she took a, a year or two off early in her career and didn't really get serious about tennis till she was, you know, came back about the age of 23, 24. And then Serena, of course, has had long layoffs. So I think they're both a little bit fresher than your typical player who's been playing full-time on the tour since they were, you know, 18, 19 years old. Once again, talking with Lindsey Gibbs of the Changeover, changeovertennis.com. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, you're also an author, and uh, you wrote the book uh, Titanic, a uh, tennis story, a very, very interesting story. It's historical fiction, but it's a... Based on a true story, it's a true story of yes. a couple of it's a true story of a, a couple of uh, tennis players that uh, survived the crash of the Titanic and then went on to be uh, Hall of Fame level and Hall of Fame uh, tennis players. So, how did you uh, get your hands or want to uh, write a story about that account and just tell me about the whole process of you uh, getting ready and then being able to and then having uh, the uh, book published? Um, yeah, thanks for asking about it. Um, it's, it, it was, it was a great story. My publisher, actually, Randy Walker, was the one who kind of, he had had his eye on this story for many years, um, and kind of felt that it was this underappreciated tale of two tennis players. I mean, they literally both survived in very different ways. One of them got on one of the first lifeboats, that was Carl Baer. Um, he just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and it was before they really, you know, anyone on the type of the ship really knew how bad the sinking was going to be. And he got on with his fiance, got on to one of the lifeboats. Um, and then the other player, Richard Williams, was literally hanging for his life from a raft, you know, in, in the water. And saw his father killed right in front of him. So, and two years later, two years after they, they met, they met on board the Carpathia ship. The rescue ship, and then two years later, they played um, in the U.S. Open quarterfinals. They played each other. But it's, it's a pretty remarkable tale. And you know, when when Randy told me about the story, I started researching it more and finding firsthand accounts, and you know, doing all the research I can. And we just agreed that it was right before the 100th anniversary of the sinking, and we just both agreed that it was a story that that really for tennis fans and for history buffs and for anyone. You know, the fact that it's, you hear so many fictional accounts of the stuff on the Titanic, but this was better than any of that. I mean, this was, this was more heroic and more inspiring than, than any of the fictional accounts I heard. Yeah, this is, a. Uh... Uh, an amazing story and also a tennis story and a love story as well as I believe uh, Bear uh, met his uh, future wife um, uh, on the uh, ship as well and after they survived. Um, yeah, they, they didn't meet on the ship but they, they oh, were reporting on the ship and, and then, um, you know, I think in the end it brought them closer together. Oh, yes. Oh, uh, thank you so very much. That's Titanic, a tennis story, and you can catch Lindsey Gibbs on the changeover, changeovertennis.com. The 2014 French Open begins on Sunday. Lindsey Gibbs, thank you so very much for joining us. And I believe the best way to not get confused about Rome and Madrid and Monte Carlo, I think we have to take a trip there and go to those events to Rome and Madrid and we'll never get confused. <laughs> I think that sounds like a plan. I do want to add, though, because we didn't talk about her, but watch out for Maria Sharapova at the French Open as well. And she is... Sorry. Yes, and she is a former French Open champion (laughs) um, as well. So, um, Lindsay Gibbs, thank you so very much for your time, and uh, we will definitely catch up uh, down the road. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it.
It's been a very special season for Club Atletico de Madrid football in La Liga, winning the La Liga title for the first time since 1996, temporarily breaking up the monopoly at the very top of La Liga with Barcelona and Real Madrid, as Atletico Madrid actually had to get a result and did get a result at the Camp Nou in Barcelona to win the La Liga title a couple of weeks ago. And now, coming up on Saturday, the UEFA Champions League final, Atletico de Madrid against Real Madrid in Lisbon and a lot of casual fans know about Real Madrid, Los Galacticos and a lot of the star players including Cristiano Ronaldo but not a lot of people, casual fans really know about Atletico de Madrid and joining us right now on a lot of sports talk is Jorge de Castro. He is the president of the Atletico de Madrid New York Supporters Club and he's going to talk about the Champions League final with Atletico as well um, as the team itself this season. First of all, Jorge, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Hi, how are you doing? Thank you for calling us. Oh. Thank you to you. Oh, no problem. And uh, first of all, I want to ask you, what are your emotions getting ready for Saturday as your club, the team that you have rooted for for so long, is getting ready to play for a chance to be called the best team in Europe? So well, we're not sleeping very well lately because <laughs> we've never been here. Actually, whoever is older than 40, maybe saw this happening before, but whoever is younger than 40 years old, we never see anything like this before, you know. So I guess as we passed quarterfinal, it was really hard for us to keep watching and trying to sleep because we've never been there in the last 40 years. Mm. So when well, you... So when you watch these games, are you excited? Are you nervous? I mean, these games with La Liga... Uh, La Liga. The emotions are uh, hundreds, you know. I could be from excitement to sadness, then to happiness, then again to... I don't know, like, it's really, really hard because you have, like, three, four emotions at the same time, so... Sometimes when you're going to the game, you are very nervous, your throat is dry, and you are, like, almost trembling and shaking, and then once the game starts, you come down a little bit and just start watching your thing. And usually we kind of suffer to win titles, so yeah. we can a little bit used to it. <laughs> now your team, Atletico de Madrid, won La Liga. You went into Barcelona, the Camp Nou, and won it. So you talked about all those emotions up and down. I'm guessing that when the final whistle blew, your emotions were unbelievably joyous. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we were like, jumping, screaming, like it was on the old people crying, like I saw, like, uh, all people like really crying in front of me because they couldn't believe what just happened to us. You know? uh, so it's, it's grateful to live it like this because if you are a Real Madrid or Barcelona fan, once you win a league and can, they're kind of used to it, so they don't celebrate as much as we did hmm. because for them it's something that it happens every two or three years all the time. Uh, describe so describe uh, the team uh, for those that don't really follow Atletico, at least for this year, why this team has been so I mean, good. The team has been a hard-working class team that we have to fight for each ball, but we lose of, of, of North in the last 10, 15, maybe 10, 12 years. The team wasn't running, the players were not fighting, and we were used to pay really high salaries to players that they were not really fighting for those balls, you know. And they saw Atletico as a team to, to, like, to show themselves and then be sell to a bigger team. So we've been covering that problem for the last 10 years. While, like, in the 80s and 90s, the big players used to come to our team all the time, you know. Mm. So all, all this happened when we went to second division after winning the last title. 
the economic the impact in the team was really, really strong, so we kind of been out of money until about two, three years ago. When you, when this club has had to essentially grow players, and when they've become really good, they've had to sell them uh, to keep the economics in balance. Um, was that always frustrating? Did you understand that, hey, that's how you guys were going to do business? Well, in the beginning, in the beginning it was frustrating because we were one of the only team investigated by the income tax and everybody. So we have a lot of trouble trying to get out of there. But now UEFA is doing the fair play to everybody, so now, in the future, all the teams are going to have the same problem we've been having for the last 10 years. Like we cannot spend more money than what is coming. Yeah. You know, while right now, Athletic Bilbao, Barcelona, and Real Madrid, they are not uh, kind of anonymous association of sports, so they can spend more money than what they can come to the club. For example, they can spend 100 million in Bell, and maybe they probably produce 140 million that year. Mm -hmm. While in our case, we are never able, because the, we are investigated by the government for oof, maybe 10 years already, so we can we are not allowed to spend, actually half of the money that we gain, we are allowed to spend in players and, and in the base club. Uh, once again, talking with Jorge de Castro, he is the president mm -hmm. of the Atletico de Madrid New York Supporters Club, and I also would have to believe that one of the reasons why this team has been so good this season and the past couple of seasons is your manager is a former player, a former longtime player for Atletico de Madrid, Diego Simeone. What has he brought to the club as a manager, um, and not only as a manager, but someone that knows the culture of Atletico de Madrid? Well, in the, the first time when he arrived, he reminds all, all of us what Atletico was. That I, I told you, we lost the North, we were like loose, and he tells us what we were, that we were a fighting team, that we fight for every ball, that we have to work very hard to win, and that we have to suffer a little bit to do it. But if we are all together, as our unit, we'll be able to do it. And that's the first thing he came, that when he came to the stadium, he said, I want players to run, I want everybody to feel the teacher, and also he started telling the history of Atletico to all the players so they can involucrate with the club and really feel where you are, you know. They, they, they was, he was saying to the players that you have to belong. If you belong here, you can stay. If you feel that you don't belong here, you go to another club. And that happened to Reyes. He talked to Reyes, you know, he used to play in Liverpool, really good, uh, sorry, Arsenal. He used to be a really good player. He even win the league with Real Madrid, and when he, Simeone arrived to Atletico, he told Reyes, listen, or you are... You feel part of the club, but then we don't need you here. And he said, listen, I don't feel part of this, of this club, so I'm going to leave. And we allow him to leave to Sevilla, actually. Uh, that player you're mentioning, uh, Jose Antonio Reyes, who's now at uh, uh, Sevilla, I believe a member of the uh, UEFA uh, Europa League uh, championship team, I believe Sevilla uh, did win uh, yes. uh, that championship. So uh, both the Europa League and the uh, Champions League winners will be in Spain. And you mentioned the players on the team that Simeone has had to talk to in terms of embracing the culture or leaving if you don't embrace what needs to be done uh, to make this team successful. Um, any player or players on the current team that you favor more or when you see them play for Atletico Madrid right now that they embody what Atletico Madrid is about. So talk about some of the players that you really... I mean, we have our about. Capitan Gabi that will be the will be like Simeone on the pitch when he was younger. So that, that even have the same number. But in the beginning, we could see like some of the players fighting the ball like crazy. But for example, right now, uh, we have to give it to all of them. Because you see Villa, 
Mm -hmm. He won he's the champion of the World Cup, he won already Champions League, he won a lot of leagues, and he actually won everything. That guy can a freaking $500,000 car to train, you know? Mm -hmm. But anyway, you see him running like he's a teenager, you see him fighting for the ball like he doesn't care, and when he doesn't have to be the number nine, uh, he works for the team, and he doesn't care to pull his pants up and just work for the whole team, even seeing that he already won everything in his life, you know? So seeing that is really impressive for me with Villa, for example, because I wouldn't believe that he would work so hard even when you are a 32-year-old player and you already won everything in this life. Yeah, David Villa has uh, been a really uh, good player with uh, Atletico after his time uh, in Barcelona. Once again, joined by Jorge de Castro. But one thing I wanted to tell you before I finish the last question, it would yeah. be unfair for me to name one player, you know what I mean? Because yeah. all of them did an amazing job, the people in the bench. I mean, everybody there did incredible job. It has been such a group effort uh, for this team, and I did get that when you were uh, mentioning that question, that you didn't necessarily name one player specifically and that uh, we got that this has been such a team effort and the morale um, and the unity has been uh, there. I wanted to ask you, before I get to the background of how you started the club and how it has grown, uh, you're a native of Spain, that is correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so being a fan of uh, Atletico de Madrid and now playing Real Madrid in the final for American fans, there are rivalries, there are derbies, where in college you're, you go to one school and you play a rival and you talk about a rival. Um, describe the rivalry between Atletico de Madrid and Real Madrid. Is it very intense? Is it poisonous? Is it timid? Just describe the rivalry between I mean, it's very, very, very intense. It's incredibly intense. Uh, even when we are playing, uh, the supporters, they seeing something against Real Madrid. Doesn't matter if we play against them or not. We always seeing something against them in each game that we watch. And also, uh, I mean, the rivalry is mostly during the game. After the game, we all know each other. We all say hi to each other. But then the jokes come when you go to school, when you go to work the next day, you know. And when you have to meet these people again, you know, and they're going to make fun of you the whole week or they're going to tell you, oh, congratulations, you won, or they will respect you, but you're going to have to deal with them the whole week because we are from the same city. And we are rivals from like a hundred years already. You know, it was up and down. There were problems between them in the eighties. Then in the nineties, everything got a little bit better. And now both clubs respect each other a lot. They try not to buy players from each other and things like that. But the rivalry is always there because you, if you win, your kid is gonna go to school with the Atletico T-shirt, right? Mm -hmm. And the other kid is gonna be in school with the Real Madrid T-shirt, and they're always gonna talk about it and argue about it a little bit. The good thing that it doesn't escalate to violence, and they are like, actually it's a healthy rivalry lately, you know. But anyway, it's like a lot, a lot of rivalry, and this one will be bigger than ever because it's the first time that two teams from the same city met in a championship final, and whoever wins it, it's going to be almost impossible to repeat this final because to take revenge, because how many times Real Madrid and Barcelona been in a final in the champion? Almost never. No. And they have more possibilities to do it than us with them, you know. So whoever wins this will stay there for centuries. Yes. No? So it seems as if that you yeah. talked about how, you know, when kids who support either of the uh, squads go to school and they'll wear an Atleti t-shirt or Real Madrid t-shirt and hear the uh, talk about how their team won. Um, I'm guessing that whoever wins this game on Saturday 
even for the next uh, day, month, year, years no, ahead. Even years, yeah, even <laughs> centuries, I could say. <laughs> yeah, that this is the really, really, this is the biggest derby ever. Yes, right it's, now, it's you know? the <laughs> ultimate game. So even if Real were to win in La Liga against Atletico, <laughs> they'll still say, "Hey, but we got the Champions League." Uh, oh yeah, and he's the tenth champion. You know, they've been dreaming of this Champions League forever, and if we remove them from them, they will be grateful. Actually, yeah. and we have most of Spain after us. You know, Barcelona. I want us to win all the fans from Sevilla, from Malaga, from different clubs that want us to beat them. So Is it we kind of have the supporters of half Spain behind us as well. Why do you think that's the case that most of the supporters that don't support Atletico Madrid or Real Madrid first would want Atletico to win? Is it just because Real Madrid is this? Well, right now, because uh, you have to understand every time Real Madrid tries to buy a player, all the clubs, even the rich clubs, PSG, Chelsea, they are waiting for Real Madrid to make a move because mm-hmm. they really put very expensive the market, meaning that last year we tried, to, we tried to get Suarez, right? Suarez was around 14 million. So the moment Real Madrid started talking about Suarez, it went up to 35 million, 40 mm-hmm. million dollars. So everybody went until they buy something for the rest of us to buy. And people doesn't like to see that, that they come up and they say, how much is the project? 45, or oh, we go up to 55. No problem, we put 65 million, and they keep going up, and people doesn't like that. They're breaking the market, and they can see that they are very, very, very rich, and they don't care about forming a team, you know, they can change 10 players in one season with the, with the wallet, you know, mm-hmm. with the money of their wallet. So that, you know, always the millionaire bring a little bit of jealous of the poor, you know. <laughs> so I guess that's why all the poor teams are with us now. Yes. Uh, once again, talking with Jorge de Castro, the president of the Atlético de Madrid New York Supporters Club. And I want to talk to you about that club. You are uh, one of the founders or the founder of the club. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah we, are, we are like four founders, actually. And one of them, and everything started, actually, I remember in 1996, if I don't, if I have it right, when we won the last title, I was actually in Circulo Espanol in Astoria because you couldn't see the games everywhere. It was only some Italian, Greek, or Spanish places to watch the games back then. And we won that title, and it was me and another person that I didn't know, like celebrating like crazy. And we went with the flags all over the city, but nobody knew what we did. <laughs> and nobody, it was nobody around. But then when I got to see Real Madrid and Barcelona fans, when they win, you have like a lot of people, but a lot of people from all over the world, you know. So I said, you know what, I'm pretty sure they should be more because We are talking about a six million people city, you know. Yeah. So I started working on it, right? And then, same thing that uh, Ignacio Carmona, Javier Bocos, and different Atletico fans arrived in New York years later, and they were able to help me. You have to come, I come from Malaga, so I don't know, I, in Malaga we have maybe, in my town we have maybe like two, three hundred people from Atletico, that's not bad, but they have their own supporter clubs and everything. So I needed to find members, and thanks to Ignacio that lives across the street from the stadium in Madrid, now he lives in New York, but he used to live there, a few people and some help from Madrid, uh, thanks to all of them, we were able to make it in the beginning. So when After that, yeah. Americans appeared by the by the supporter club, because they, they were living in Madrid, doing on vacation, or studying abroad, and they finally love with Atletico. Actually, we have a big, big fan in the fan club. We have like maybe 20, 25 USA, US, I mean, citizens, that they went to Madrid to study Spanish and they fell in love with Atletico. 
So when did the club officially start then? Because okay. the championship uh, that they won in La Liga last was 96. You celebrated with one other person who was running up yeah, and down with an athletic flag. Um, so from then, and then Barcelona and Real Madrid uh, resumed their... Uh, yeah, that was the idea in the beginning. And then I met Jordi from Bar the person of Barcelona, yeah. uh, supporter clubs in New York, and he also pushed me a lot to do it. He was like, come on, guys, you have to do it. We start with three people, we're almost 400 now, you have to try, you have to try. And him and some other people, because the idea was working for a long time. Also, you have to come in 1996, I was about 20-something years old, so I didn't have the mobility or power, and not we didn't have internet to do it the way we did this time. Huh? Uh, you mentioned that uh, you are from Malaga, which is, um, if I remember, if I hopefully remember correctly, the southern part of Spain. You're right by that's right yeah. by the Mediterranean uh, Sea. How did you become an Atlético Madrid fan? Uh, at least born in Malaga. I'm not sure if you were raised there, but how did you become an Atlético? No, actually, I was born in Galicia, but because they were studying medicine, my parents then I was moved to Malaga. Oh, okay. okay. But I consider myself from there because that's where I grew up. How did you become a fan? Well, my godfather, I guess when he took me to the church to baptize myself, he was from Atletico, so maybe he did something there. <laughs> <laughs> it all happened in, in a church setting. That, that, that can't I be think so. That. He's, he's the biggest Atletico fan in my family, my godfather. So I guess by, by him I become one. But, no, but the real history will be like one, one, around three, four years old. My brother, my aunt, and a lot of my family members were Real Madrid fans. And I don't know, for one reason or another, I started like the Atletico more than Real Madrid. Also, when I started watching, was Baltasar there that was making a lot of goals in the 80s. So I guess mm -hmm. that was why. And then, of course, rivality with my brother that is from Real Madrid. So that that make it grateful, that make it even better for me to become an Atletico fan. What? And after a while, Jesus him, the president of Atletico, became the mayor of my town. Somehow. Wow. The president <laughs> and then, of I mean, the club that didn't make me follow him, that made me be closer to Atletico, knowing I have the presence of my club rolling my tongue as well. <laughs> so one thing I want to make sure of, your brother and a lot of members of your family are Real Madrid fans. And oh, hardcore Real Madrid fans. Hardcore. And that emboldened you to become more of an Atletico fan. Now, you already were an Atletico fan, but seeing a lot of your family being Real fans, you just wanted to be even more of an Atletico fan. That's correct. Imagine my, my nephew, his name is Iker. Oh, wow, Iker, for uh, Iker Casillas, <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> People six years ago, and the name Iker. I'm looking, he doesn't know his name, it's not Casillas, but it's very close. <laughs> yes, sir, for those that don't know, Iker Casillas, the uh, uh, goalkeeper for uh, Real Madrid and also the uh, Spanish number one uh, national goalkeeper. So um, I think you told me um, off air that your brother is actually going to be in Lisbon for the finals. Yeah, yeah, he will, he will. He will, and he'll have his... Um, he's a lucky guy, so he's going over there to see the final. <laughs> um, he's lucky up until the game itself. What if Atletico were to win? Then he won't be so lucky. Oh, no, no. He, hopefully he does. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um... He uh, imagine that he's going by himself, and I told him, listen, go to the... with the supported clubs of Atletico of Estepona. They all know you, right? Of my town. They all know you. They are your friends. You go with them. Like, no way, because if I win... I don't want to come back with them. If they win, I don't want to hear them when I come back to, the, to Malaga, you know? <laughs> so, so he's driving all by himself. He's living today by himself to this world and six hour drive by himself. <laughs> wow. Uh, so tell me how uh, Atleti supporters in New York City 
can get a chance to be with fellow Atleti su- supporters for Saturday's uh, game with Real for the Champions League final. So if they want to be and hang around other Atleti fans, uh, what should they do in New York City? In New York City, you want to hang around with us. We are supporting clubs. This in uh, the bar is called Trinacnon. It's an Irish bar in 30, well, I think 38, the street between 8 and 9. Mm-hmm. If I'm not confused, it's called Trinacnon. I don't have the address right now. You catch me at my feet there. <laughs> but it's over there. Also, everybody is welcome. Eh? You don't have to be a Real Madrid fan, fan but the other fans are more than welcome this hour. <laughs> but also, you're a Real Madrid fan, it's no, no beef and no big deal, okay? Mm-hmm. You may hear something that you don't like when we sing, but no more than that. <laughs> uh, speaking of singing, uh, give me, and you can uh, say it in uh, Spanish as well, obviously, um, give me at least one sample of a song that you, that you or Atleti fans may sing either at the bar or at the Vicente Calderon, which is the uh, home arena for Atletico Madrid. Give me a, an example of what you may sing. First, I want to give you the, the address of the place, because I just got it, sorry. Mm-hmm. 315 West 39th Street, New York, New York, and the telephone number is 212-760-0072. Yep. Just in case somebody want to come on Saturday to see the final with us, everybody's more than welcome. We don't care what thing are you from, you are more than welcome. Yes, 315 okay. West 39th Street to be with uh, Atletico Madrid supporters during the Champions League final. But yes, uh, give me a small uh, small sample or example of a song. Uh, I will give you one on Real Madrid because it's the very <laughs> Okay, so one specific song for Real Madrid. Uh, I'm trying to look one that doesn't have any, you know, that don't insult anybody. So. <laughs> hey, uh, try your hardest, yes. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's just start like, vota, vota. Pequeño canguro y a los madridistas que den por el pi. I won't say what I say in the last, but the bad word I I speak myself, but it's okay. <laughs> oh, we, we also have one that is, is the same side. Real Madrid, 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 Real Madrid. <laughs> um, so I'm guessing that song will be at full voice tomorrow at the bar with Atleti supporters. Like that bar will be. Oh yeah, that singing, that, that you know. was one. But in my case, for example, I'm not against anybody. I love soccer. Okay. But most of my supporters club and most of Atletico Madrid fans, they will be against Real Madrid. I think as my enemy today, but tomorrow they can do whatever they want. Okay, okay, that is great to hear. Just for, for one day... No, no, that's me, but 90% of the people doesn't see my way. Oh, no, they don't see it their way. Okay, <laughs> but for you, it's for this day, we are opponents, possible enemies, because mm-hmm. I want to win, but then after that, um, then it's all good, it's all fun, and we're all... No, um, yeah, yeah, for, for example, when Sevilla, yes. when Sevilla won Europa League, I was happy for them, even that I don't like Sevilla, no? I, I would rather Betis, you know, but mm-hmm. I was very happy for them, you know, I'd rather a Spanish team to win than a Portuguese or a German or a whole part. Yeah, so... But up to there, you know? Yeah, it will be two La Liga teams that will take home the Champions League as well um, as the Europa League. And the Champions League final, once again, it is 
Atlético de Madrid and Real Madrid in Lisboa, Lisbon, uh, Portugal on Saturday. And Jorge de Castro, the president of the Atlético de Madrid New York Supporters Club, we thank you so very much for joining us to educate us uh, a little bit more about Atlético de Madrid and uh, your supporters and the club. And we do thank you so much for joining us. And we will talk with you down the road. And hopefully, um, we will see you as well on Saturday. And I'm waiting for everybody to show up there. Everybody is welcome. I will try to buy a beer to any new member that appears. And as well, I would like to say that I arrived here in 1994. And football or soccer, whatever you want to call it, was nothing. And right now, it's such a big sport in USA that's unbelievable. Yes, it is. The Major League Soccer, everything. They've been working amazingly to make the sport here great. I mean, they're doing it. I mean, I'm impressed. They're really doing it. Yeah, and, and we I want to congratulate all the Americans so for what the league they have and what they're doing because they're progressing a lot. It's incredible what they're doing. But I've been here the last 20, 20 something years, so I really saw it. You know, people that just arrived, oh, the soccer here is awesome. No, no, they're really progressing incredible. Hopefully, from here to 30 years, USA will win a World Cup as well. <laughs> uh, I, I guess we hope so too. But um, my, to be honest, my first allegiance is with Nigeria, uh, and hopefully they win a World Cup first before the uh, United oh, States. Oh, Nigeria is great as well. Eh? Nigeria yes. is very good. Yes, uh, but and we thank people like yourself uh, who have come over to the states and have exposed us to a lot of the first-class soccer uh, that goes on in Europe, and to be able to embrace it as a American born uh, fan and a lot of American born fans are now embracing La Liga and the Premier League and Serie A and the Bundesliga to be able to be around fans like yourself in the States um, has been a pleasure as well and and we are thankful to have people like you uh, here to continue to grow the sport of soccer in America so it's all it's always a pleasure to talk soccer with you. No, thank you. Thank you for doing what you do and having this program so that we can talk about soccer in the air for everybody. Oh, no problem. That's Jorge de Castro, president of the Atlético de Madrid New York Supporters Club. And as he said, he'll buy you a beer, all right, for any new person that shows up. I will. Up. Any new member that <laughs> of Atlético, they will. The Real Madrid members are all the time. I won't buy the beer, but I will say hi to them. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jorge, thank you so very much for joining us, and we'll talk with you very shortly. All right. Are you going to tell me you're going to pass up a free beer in the name of soccer fandom? We do thank Jorge de Castro so very much for joining us. And we also thank Lindsey Gibbs of the Changeover, changeovertennis.com, talking a little French open. So episode three, almost done as we have another minute or two minutes to kill here. But episode four should be a whole lot of fun as well as in the National Football League OTAs, otherwise known as off-season training activities, open up across the National Football League, and we do hope to have a person involved in the National Football League, a player, a coach, a fan, to talk a little bit about the NFL as minicamp opens up next week. And we will also have a conversation about the Oakland Athletics, the best team in Major League best Baseball, the team with the best record in the Major Leagues. And we will talk about the swinging A's, well, more like the pitching A's, as they have 
by far the best pitching staff in the major league so far. So a little bit of baseball, a little bit of football. We might talk about a little bit of hockey as well as the Stanley Cup finals might be set. The matchup might be set by this time next week. The conference finals currently going on with Chicago and Los Angeles. That series tied at one and the Canadians and the New York Rangers, the Rangers holding a two to one series lead at the time of us recording this podcast. So stay tuned next week. It should be a whole lot of fun. And until then, enjoy your Memorial Day weekend. Okay, you take care and we'll see you next week. Bye bye.